Jesus Messiah, the promise fulfilled, the hope of the world born for us. I love that song, and I love Christmas time. Just to be able to dig in a little bit deeper to what it really means. We were joking around before the first service. Uh, you can celebrate whatever you want at Christmas, but the name alone, Christ Christmas, <laughs> Christmas, the celebration of Christ and his birth. Uh, we're going to celebrate Christmas here together this morning, and, and I hope that you're ready uh, to allow God to speak to you this morning about the, his true purpose in, in Christmas. Uh, well, Christmas has uh, all kinds of different special joys that come with it this morning, uh, every, every year. And one of those is for my wife is getting the mail, you know. Um, just the mail in the month of December takes on new meaning for my wife. Uh, she's the first one out there to get it. And uh, she sorts through, takes all the cards, hands me all the bills. That's the way it works in our house. I don't know how it works for you guys, but uh, maybe that's different in your house. But there's just this thing with getting Christmas cards and being able to see how everybody's doing and, and uh, catch up with everybody. Well, some of the cards that we see at Christmas, I just love because I'm always looking for New, a new way or a new twist, uh, sometimes something funny. Here were a couple cards I saw this year that I liked. Um, more than anything, Dasher wants to put the day of reindeer tryouts behind him. You see Dasher initiated there with the toilet paper connected to his hoof. Anyway, I thought it was funny. This next one, you also, uh, Rudy's lit, we're good to go. Uh, I don't know why, just a weird sense of humor I have. But then there are some, some more serious cards, and there are some more, more beautiful cards that maybe uh, capture the season a little differently. Uh, one like this, where you're looking, and, and it looks so pretty and so angelic. And, but sometimes when you see a scene like that, you really have to wonder, how realistic was this really? Um, I mean, it looks so, so beautiful and so serene. Maybe you can flip to the next one. When I see a card like this, and, and you think about Mary, and she's there and still in her beautiful robe after giving birth, uh, with it looked like a two-year-old Jesus there, I'm not sure. But I don't know how he came out that way, but apparently he just graduated uh, in time. Uh, but you look at that and you think about it, and, and this is what goes through my mind, I have to be honest with you. I, you know, I was present at four of our, our children's births, and we, we have a barn. It's a small one, but we have one out behind our house. I've, I've been in our barn, and I've been there when four of our kids were born, and it didn't look anything like that. <laughs> Neither of those places remind me anything of that, that Christmas card. And I don't know how many of you have a barn and you ever think about the idea of uh, offering that for a child to be born there. It's, it's just those two thoughts don't really go together so well. So Christmas cards sometimes lead us to believe that the miraculous is always neat and tidy. Don't they? And even the way that we celebrate Christmas sometimes, we believe that the God moments in our lives or the miraculous things in our lives are always going to come beautifully packaged. And that's not always true. Through this series, we've been talking about what living out the whole gospel means and embracing the entirety of the story of, of Jesus and his life and how he came to rescue and redeem a broken world. Jesus, Messiah, promise fulfilled, hope of the world, born for us. And so much of what we might want to think the gospel is really about, that neat and tidy package, it simply isn't. Because the gospel is really racked with, with a reality that is just raw and real. And sometimes the gospel is just plain messy, if we're honest. The gospel is just plain messy. When Jesus came into the world, it was anything except for neat and tidy. Anything except the way that we think it should be according to our standards. Think about it. The God of the universe being born into a barn. The Savior of the world coming with the purpose of serving and not of ruling. Just backwards and very different. And if you've spent any amount of time uh, with God leading your life, 
even if you're a new Christ follower and it's not been long, you realize that it's true what Isaiah the prophet wrote, that his ways are not our ways and that his thoughts are not our thoughts and that God operates differently than the economy that we have grown up in and the way that we live and the way that we think. And sometimes it's so hard for our, us to get our arms around that. The whole gospel is really, really messy. We made the mess and Jesus came right down into the middle of the mess that we've made. I want you to watch this video clip with me. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, son. She wrapped him in cloths and she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. God had this messy plan, a plan to save the world. And to do that, he was going to send his son. Where does the God of the universe send his son? Where, where, where does the King of Kings and Lord of Lords come? To a barn, a stable, a, a manger of all places. Certainly no place fit for a king. But then again, this wasn't any ordinary king. When I say it was messy, I mean messy. It, it was a barn, a stable, right? So you've got animals and animal stuff, manure, mud, a pitiful place for people, much less a place for the king of kings to be born. Why would God do that? Well, I can't tell you for sure, because Isaiah explains to us that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. But that same prophet 400 years before Jesus was born, said, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way, and that he has laid our iniquities on him. You see, Jesus came to a messy place. Oh, yeah, a barn, a manger, that's messy. But he came to a messy world. Why? Because the shepherd was coming to take care of the sheep, to prepare a way for them to go home. That's what a shepherd does. He lives where the sheep are. He sleeps where they sleep. He eats where they eat. It got Jesus in trouble. Why did Jesus eat with sinners? Because that's what the shepherd does. An angel appeared to the shepherds in the field and said, this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in cloths and laying in a manger, a sign. You ever wondered what that sign was? A sign for what? Maybe a sign that Jesus is accessible to everyone. A sign that the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills can relate to a homeless person. Because Jesus never had a home, never had a place to rest his head. Maybe it was a sign that God would have nothing to do with the social status of mankind. A sign that he detests the splendor of humans because it's not worthy of him. But it was a sign for us that we should follow suit. In fact, the Apostle Paul later on would write, we should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Although he was the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but that he made himself nothing, 
becoming a servant, being made in human likeness. A servant. You see, being a servant is, is messy. And Jesus set this incredible example for us. I mean, he got down on his knees and he washed feet. The God of the universe, the God who deserved the best of everything, got on his knees. He's the God who came to the world and was laid in a manger, a feed trough of all places. Why such a messy place? Because he was following a messy plan. So needless to say, that very first Christmas was dirty. It was grimy, it was, it was filthy. <laughs> but thank God it was. Because without it, what a mess we'd be in. What a mess we'd been in. He asked a great question in the video. He asked, why would God do that? Why would God come and be born in the middle of the mess? And the simple answer is, I think Jesus wanted to clearly model what it means to love. And that that's what it truly means to love, is to come right into the middle of the mess. And that's really what we want Christmas to be about. I was even thinking about that this week as I was listening to advertisements and thinking even people who are far from God who don't understand what the real meaning of Christmas is all about, everybody wants to experience the same thing. They want to be loved. They want to learn how to love others better. They want to be able to, to give and to receive love. They want to be able to find a place that they can call home. They want to find a family uh, something that they can, a love that they can believe in. And uh, this morning I want us to focus on how we can learn to follow Jesus' example of love and love the way that God loves this Christmas. That this week, this Christmas, uh, we can love the way that God loves. And there's a great story in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus tells. And this, I think, will help us understand what it means to love with this kind of messy love that Jesus demonstrates or that he talks about. And you can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 10 or you can just follow along in your outline uh, or on the screen this morning. As a matter of fact, if, if you haven't taken out your outline, if you would take that out this morning and, and follow along, there's also a response card in your worship guide. You might want to take that out as well. And if there's anything that God speaks to you about that you want to follow up with, you can write that down or, or write down a prayer request this morning as we go throughout the message. Starting in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now I want to pause there for just a minute because uh, that's known as the great commandment in Scripture, to love the Lord your God with everything that you have, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so this man obviously understood uh, the Old Testament. He understood what the law was all about. Jesus says, right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus is telling him what is, what's most important, and that's loving God with all your heart and loving your, your neighbor. Specifically, he focuses, Jesus says, on loving your neighbor. And so this guy wants to know exactly who his neighbor is. Essentially, he's asking exactly what he needs to do in order to meet the minimum requirement. This is a guy who is, is trying to test Jesus in some way. He's trying to understand what, what do I need to do in order to, to be righteous? What's, what's kind of the minimum requirement for me? How far does this love for others really need to go? 
And Jesus answers with a story. Now, this story this morning is a messy story. I've got to tell you, even as we look at it, and you think about Jesus telling this story to the man, but to the audience who was listening, this is a really messy story on a number of levels. It's a messy story physically. It's a messy story emotionally, socially, religiously, on almost all fronts. And this is the story we want to look at today. It would have been a very hard story for the audience who was taking it in to receive. Jesus is answering the question, how do we live out the whole gospel by loving our neighbor, even when it gets a little bit messy? So I want to help us answer the question this Christmas, how can you and I love more like like Jesus does? And in your outline, it says, loving my neighbor gets messy when I, number one, allow my heart to be moved by compassion. When I allow my heart to be moved by compassion. Let me pick up in verse 30 and read. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him dying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man... He felt compassion for him. Would you underline that? He felt compassion for him. Okay, so we have a Jewish man who was attacked, and he was beaten, and he was left for dead beside the road. And then we have a priest, a man of supreme importance in the Jewish social system. He would have been the one who represented the people before God. He would have been the one who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. He would have been the one who interpreted the law for the people. So you could kind of say priests in that day were a pretty big deal. They weren't just pastors. They were kind of in the culture. Uh, They were seen as kind of uh, top rung in Jewish culture. And I'm sure this priest had important things that he needed to be tending to, and I'm sure that he was on his way to speak at the synagogue uh, or maybe possibly going to deliver some religious thesis to a council of other priests. But the implication here is clearly he could not be bothered by such a mess that he saw. So he crossed over, he actually physically crossed over to the other side where he could pretend either A, that he didn't see the man, or maybe he was telling himself that someone else, uh, this was someone else's job to take care of of something like this. Besides, he was was busy, and it was clearly inconvenient for him. And here's where it goes a little deeper. If the man had actually been dead, and the priest had gone over and touched him or had contact with him, then the priest would have been ceremonially unclean. And as a priest, part of his role is to remain ceremonially clean so that he can go and do important things in representing uh, the people before God. So I'm sure his thought process instantly went to, I'm too important and there's too much at stake for me to get my hands dirty on this particular day. So the next guy who comes along, they say a, a temple assistant in this version, but it's actually a Levite. And a Levite is not quite as important as a priest, but he's still part of a pretty privileged group, kind of a next step down. A Levite would have served as a temple assistant. He would have been responsible for reading the liturgy. He would have been in the uh, position of protecting the temple or guarding the temple. And when he saw the beaten man, he actually went over and looked at the beaten man before he crossed over to the other side of the road. And I think this is the first scriptural example of rubbernecking. You know what I mean? Like kind of going by, but you got to check it out and see what's going on before you keep on slowly moseying on down the road. Uh, He wanted to see what was going on, but he didn't want to get involved in it. And really, nothing was happening in his heart that would have compelled him to respond in any tangible way. So it almost sounds like Jesus was making his response similar to the kind of response that you or I might have, might have if we saw roadkill 
uh, on the side of the road. Uh, you know, we're, we see roadkill. If, if you're walking, you know, and you're a guy, you may actually want to go over and get a closer look to see what, what it was that was killed. And some of you men are smiling. I know some of you guys would get a stick and poke it with a stick to make sure it was really dead or roll it over. Women are just looking at me, but we do this stuff. Like, I don't know why. Uh, just outside of my neighborhood the other day, a guy had pulled over and uh, I thought something was wrong with the cab on the back of his truck because it was kind of off the center. And so I stopped to see if, if he was okay. And he kind of smiled and he said, yeah. He said, there was a f- I'm not joking. There was a freshly hit squirrel back there and he was making squirrel pot pie. And so he had just stopped to go back and get the squirrel so he could add it to the pot pie. Not kidding. I do live in Dillsburg. So land of the free, home of the brave, Dillsburg. <laughs> So anyway, you would never touch roadkill, though. Men, even if we would go over and poke it with a stick, we just wouldn't touch it. Uh, We'd walk away unaffected because, truthfully, it's just roadkill, right? And that's almost what Jesus was describing here. So far, Jesus has mentioned a priest and a Levite. So he's working his way down the Jewish hierarchy of the social ladder. Priest, Levite. So you would think that the next uh, person you'd expect Jesus to mention would be like an upstanding Jewish citizen or someone in the culture who was kind of a next rung down. But instead of just taking one more step down the social ladder, Jesus jumps off the ladder completely. And he says this, the next person is a Samaritan, a half-breed, someone considered dirty or despicable to Jews. They were kind of genealogical mutts. (laughs) They were part Israelite and part other. And even though Samaritans believed in Jewish law, they worshiped at another place, not in Jerusalem. And there was extreme contempt between Jews and Samaritans, so much so that it often led not just to argument or to, um, to intense hatred, but, but even violence towards each other. And this is the guy in the story. Keep in mind, Jesus has a Jewish audience. He's speaking to a very committed Jew. And this is the guy who Jesus makes out to be the hero of the story. Think about how the crowd suddenly kind of went, like, this is not where I thought he was going to go with this. The... The Bible says, then a dis- Jesus said, then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. What makes him the hero? His compassion that he felt. That's what makes him the hero. The guy who had the least logical reason to help the man is the only one in the story that Jesus tells who had compassion for him. And Jesus says that the Samaritan was moved with compassion. And this is a really, really uh, vivid Greek word. It, it actually... <laughs> Uh, literally refers to your intestines. It it means to be moved with compassion at the deepest part of your gut. You feel something so deeply in your gut that you have to respond. There's no way you can't respond. You feel it so intensely and so deeply. And obviously, the Samaritan didn't base his reaction on this guy's social status. He based it on his need. He saw the person and the need, not the posturing, not his own fear, not his own agenda, not his own schedule. He simply saw the need, and the Bible says he was, Jesus said he was moved by compassion for the person in front of him. And something happened in his gut in that moment that made it impossible, just impossible for him to walk away or for him to cross over to the other side of the road or for him to even think about himself in that moment. It was impossible for him to not respond. Maybe you've heard of the story of Kitty Genovese. Uh, Kitty Genovese uh, lived in New York City in the 1960s. And it's a modern-day story that's similar to the one Jesus told. The only difference is there was no good Samaritan that came along and saved the day. Let me just read to you a summary of this story. It was just after 3 a.m. 
A red Fiat rolled slowly through the darkness into a parking space adjacent to the Long Island Railroad Station. The young woman behind the wheel emerged from the car and locked it. She began the 100-foot walk toward her apartment house at 8270 Austin Street. But then she spotted a man standing along her route. Apparently afraid, she changed direction and headed toward the intersection of Austin and Lefferts Boulevard, where there, was, where there was a police call box. Suddenly, the man overtook her and grabbed her. She screamed. Residents of nearby apartment houses turned on their lights and threw open their windows. The woman screamed again. Oh my gosh, he stabbed me. Please help me. A man in the window shouted, let that girl alone. The attacker walked away. Apartment lights went out and windows slammed shut. The victim staggered towards her apartment, but the attacker returned and stabbed her again. I'm dying, she cried. Windows opened again. The attacker, the attacker entered a car and drove away. Windows closed, but the attacker soon came back again. His victim had crawled inside the front door of an apartment house at 8262 Austin Street. He found her sprawled out on the floor, and he stabbed her still again, this time killing her. It was not until 3.50 that morning, almost an hour later, on March 13, 1964, that a neighbor of the victim called the police. Officers arrived two minutes later and found the body. They identified the victim as Catherine Genovese, 28, who had been returning from her job as manager of a bar in Hollis. Neighbors knew her not as Catherine, but as Kitty. Kitty Genovese. It was a name that would become symbolic in the public mind for a dark side of the national character. It would stand for Americans who were too indifferent or too frightened or too alienated or too self-absorbed to get involved in helping a fellow human, a fellow human being in dire trouble. A term, the Genovese syndrome, would be coined to describe the attitude. Detectives investigating Genovese's murder discovered that no fewer than 38 of her neighbors had witnessed at least one of her killer's three attacks, but had neither come to her aid nor called the police. The one call made to the police came after Genovese was already dead. And that time, um, it was kind of felt that that was the beginning of the decline of our common um, Good Samaritan desire to help a brother or a sister in need. And there was a lot of talk about it at that particular time. And so you might look at back and they say, well, that was New York City and it was a different time. But I don't know if you followed the news just at the beginning of the month of December uh, when on a train platform, a subway platform also in uh, New York, there was an altercation between uh, two men and the one man fell down onto the tracks. And I don't know how many minutes, um, but it was described that there were many minutes where the man who had fallen on the tracks was trying to get back up onto the platform. And there were dozens of people on the platform who witnessed this, some even taking pictures of the man who was trying to get back up on the tracks, which were later published, but no one helping him. The train came through and the man was killed uh, with, with no one coming to his rescue. And when you hear stories like this, sometimes you're outraged. I mean, you just hear about it and you're thinking, what's wrong with people? Why don't people care about anybody anymore? Why don't we do something to help? Doesn't common decency just, just mandate that we're going to get involved in some way? Just a common sense of, of care for a brother or a sister in need. And then you think this question, what would I have done if I were there? I certainly would have helped, wouldn't I? Wouldn't I have done something? But then I have to ask myself, would I really? What would I really do in that kind of situation when I saw that there was a need to help out? Do I have any right to really be outraged with people or do I often act the same way? Let me shift the story a little bit and just share with you some stats about 
our ever, the ever-growing need in our world right now. One-third of the world's population lacks sufficient access to safe drinking water and sanitation to meet their basic needs. Dirty water causes over 3 million deaths each year. This can be compared to 10 jumbo jets crashing every day, 90% of the passengers being children. The majority are women and children in rural poor areas who lack access to safe water and sanitation. Unclean water and poor sanitation are the second largest cause of death of children worldwide. In addition, according to the most recent estimate, malnutrition, as measured by stunting of growth, affects 32.5% of children in developing countries, one out of three. Geographically, more than 70% of malnourished children live in Asia, 26% in Africa, and 4% in Latin America and the Caribbean. In many cases, their plight began even before their birth with a malnourished mother. Note that there is plenty of... It's not that the world does not produce enough food for everyone. There's plenty of food. It's just not able to get to them. Also, many people, most of them in tropical countries of the third world, die of preventable, curable diseases. Malaria, tuberculosis, acute lower respiratory infections. These claim 6.1 million lives last year. 164,000 people, mostly children under the age of five, die from measles in a single year, even though effective immunization, which includes vaccine and safe injection equipment, costs less than one U.S. dollar and has been available for more than 40 years. 11 million people in poor countries will die from infectious diseases this year. Put a different way, it means that in the next five minutes, 100 people will have died. Half of them will be children under the age of five. This is a different way to look at the Kitty Genovese story that's playing out right in front of us today. How are we responding to the needs that are around us? And am I a neighbor in the sense that Jesus defines neighbor in this passage? Am I, I allowing God to break my heart over things like this? Or do I find it easier to just cross to the other side of the road and think that in my world there are other things going on that I need to focus on right now? Oftentimes I think I'm guilty of believing that my world is just much too busy and much too comfortable to get involved in different areas of compassion. And Jesus is saying to this man in this parable, this man who is asking him, where's the bar? What do I need to do? Jesus is saying that lacking that kind of compassion is not okay. Jesus is calling us to have a heart like his, a heart that is moved with compassion, but that requires us getting to know Jesus intimately enough that we're able to see people the same way that he does. And it really means this. It means that when we have that kind of heart, we're going to get messy. And our lives are going to get messy. It means that our heart is going to have to be broken sometimes. It means that sometimes we're going to have to feel like we have no idea what to do but we absolutely have to do something because we just can't sit back and ignore the mess that we see going on around us. And I'm guessing that for all of us in this room, in some way, most of us felt a sense of that kind of compassion these past couple weeks for the people in Newtown, Connecticut. Probably not a single one of us didn't fight back tears at some point when we heard the names of all those children and teachers that were murdered. Our hearts were broken for them in some way, and most of us were probably looking for some way that we could respond, just to do something to help. You just, you wanted to do something, and that's compassion. Now, I know that the global statistics that I shared, and even um, the tragedy at Sandy Hook, speak to a large-scale 
social need. But there are needs all around us in our own neighborhoods too. And sometimes I think we miss them because they're not quite as exceptional or publicized, but they're there and they're part of the landscape of your life and of my life every day. And I think these may also be the ones that Jesus is specifically referring to when he calls for our compassion for our neighbors. Because they require us to think about the people who are right on our own path every day. The single mom who lives next door, the unemployed dad who's across the street, the kid who comes over to hang out with your kids, and he's obviously hurting and his behavior reflects that. Maybe someone battling a sickness. Or maybe the man or the woman that you work with that's in the middle of an ugly, really messy divorce. And they're hurting. I want you to think about that person this Christmas. Those people who this week God might call you to love because they're in your path. God might call you towards compassion for someone who doesn't look like the Christmas card. For someone who it's never going to be pretty for you to step in and offer them love. And all of these are people who are right in our own path. And I think Jesus is asking if we're going to let him stir up that compassion inside of us so that we're compelled to go and be his hands and feet. Or are we going to be content to do the crossover thing? You know, there are so many different ways that we can apply this to our lives. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. What if God was calling you to engage with his heart of compassion in just one new way this week, this Christmas. You know, we've been talking about global giving all month for the last four weeks, and there's this purple insert in your, your guide. And these are people that God might be calling you to be a neighbor to, to show love to. Maybe you've wrestled with this as you've heard about it this month, but truth be told, you've not allowed God to engage your heart to be compassionate for someone. Maybe God's calling you to respond in that way. Or maybe as you've thought about this Sandy Hook tragedy and you can't get it out of your mind for the past couple weeks, maybe God is calling you to specifically pray for them or maybe even bringing it closer to home. Maybe you know someone who's experienced a loss this year who you do know closely or who is a friend or a family friend. And you know for that person, Christmas is just not going to be the same this year because they're going through it with a loss. And maybe God's going to call you to have compassion and feel a little more deeply to reach out in a way that you normally wouldn't. Possibly, there's someone who you know, bringing it right close to home, someone in your path who experienced one of those things that we talked about early. Maybe they're going through a divorce or going through a rough time. And this Christmas, God is calling you to invite them into your family room. And you can make a hundred different excuses why that's not good. I'm sure they already have Christmas plans. I'm sure they already have something to do or a place to go. And maybe that's true. But maybe God's calling you to stretch in your heart of compassion in some way to invite someone else to be around your table at some point this Christmas or to invite someone else to spend some time with you or maybe to drop something off at someone's house that would just show God's love through you, God's compassion shining through you. You know, as God leads us to do these kinds of things, as we open up our heart to allow him to develop that kind of compassion in us, it's going to require sacrifice. And that's the next point in your outline. Loving my neighbor gets messy when I personally sacrifice to meet the need. Loving my neighbor gets messy when I personally sacrifice to meet the need. Verse 34. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. 
Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Then Jesus said, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy, the one who showed compassion. Then Jesus answered, yes, now go and do the same. This gut level compassion moved the Samaritan to do something. He couldn't just pass by. The Bible said, Jesus said, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. The first thing the Samaritan had to do was move toward the man. The very first thing. And keep in mind that this is a road that you didn't usually want to stop on. This is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And for those of you who have never gotten the chance to go there, let me give you just a little geography. Jerusalem is known as the city on the hill. Uh, When you're in Jerusalem, you can see, on a clear day, you can see a good bit of all of Israel. Jericho is thousands of feet below at the north side of the Dead Sea, but they're not that far apart. There's a huge descent from Jerusalem down into Jericho. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a canyon. It's a very, very narrow and winding as you work your way down through. There would have been a water source there and the, uh, a creek going through it, and the road would have been along the side, kind of on the side of a cliff. You think of a winding road. People did not want to travel this road at night. Uh, as a matter of fact, David, thousands of years before, penned some famous words in the Psalms. He said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he was referring to that road. That's what they named it, the valley of the shadow of death between Jerusalem and Jericho. Every corner, you didn't, couldn't see what was around the next corner. You risked your life taking that road. This is a road that people didn't want to stop on. This is a road that they wanted to look out for their own best interests. But this man not only took the time to stop this Samaritan, he didn't just wait to see if someone else was going to help. He didn't just uh, call out for help. He, took, he saw the need and he got involved. And it says, then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn. Basically, he got off his donkey and did something. There's another way you can say that, but we're not going to go there today. He used the resources that he had. He used the resources that, that God had given him. And remember, this man was traveling. He, wasn't, he didn't have with him a whole medicine kit. He didn't plan on that. Whatever resources he had with him, the wine and the oil, those would have been resources he was planning on using for his journey. But instead, he used them to sacrifice for this other man. It cost him something, both literally and figuratively. He pays the innkeeper the money up front, and he promises that he'll make full payment on his next time through town. His compassion caused him to sacrifice personally. And this is the interesting part about this story. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but if the man who had been beaten, beat up and bruised, if he had been awake or conscious when the Samaritan was trying to help him, he probably would have refused his help because he was a Samaritan. And the Samaritan knew that. He probably would have refused refused help had he been conscious. And sometimes I think we exclude ourselves from uh, being the person who God might use to, to help because we don't think we have much to offer. But the truth is, with time, talent, treasure, our resources, we are some of the wealthiest people in the world. And honestly, our excuses keep us trapped in our own little world, believing that we don't have anything to offer. And sometimes our excuses are pretty pathetic. And I think you might enjoy uh, this clip. It takes an honest look at some of our big pathetic excuses, some of our big first world problems that we struggle with here. Let's take a look. Every year of every day, thousands of people fall victim to FWP. I'm so cold. I'm starving. Nobody cares about me. Also known as... 
First world problems. I am so cold. Somebody set the AC to 72. I need it at 73. Starving. Oh, yes. Leftovers. Nobody cares about me. Nobody commented or liked my status. Hi, I'm Ryan Higa. And for just five hours of attention a day, you could help somebody with FWP. Everyone keeps putting so much pressure on me. I don't know what I want for my birthday. I have too much chips for my dip. If I open a new dip, I'll have too much dip for my chips. Why does Apple keep making new iPhones? Now I have to get another one? They've been through so much struggle. The remote's over there. But I'm all the way over here. So much hardship. My iPhone 5 is too big for my skinny jeans. So much attention. Tension. 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 I poured my cereal without checking to see if we had milk. We did it. So please, show your support and send them this video. And show them how much we care about their FWPs. I bought too many groceries. Now I'll have to make two trips. All you have to do is call the URL 1-800.org. Alright, you're all laughing, but uh, because it's just kind of pathetic. But it's true, we all act like this in one way or another. Like, oh, we we struggle with these terrible things. And I know, uh, I don't want to make light of anyone's. We we do go through tough things as well. But so often in life, uh, I think all you have to do is scan someone's Facebook page to just find a few first world problems that we all deal with. Here's just a few that I saw this week. Someone complaining, having righteous indignation because they had to wait 10 to 15 minutes for their blooming onion to arrive at their table. Um, Their world was, uh, someone else, their world was ending because their stylist couldn't get them in before the holidays and thus uh, their hair wasn't going to be done. What's a girl going to do? I don't know. Uh, Total outrage and a rant that someone had written about someone in front of them not using their turn signal. Um, You know, I, I often complain because I have the iPhone 3 and often I have to wait 30 to 50 seconds just for something to, to pop up so I can mobily check my email somewhere. You know, it's, it's terrible, our first world problems that, that we struggle with. But we're so quick to get consumed with our own first world problems that we really forget what it means to suffer. We do. We forget what it means uh, to have, we, we lose our heart of compassion for those who are truly hurting in the midst of all of our own um, little complaints. And I think this is exactly what Jesus is trying to call us away from. You might want to make light of it this Christmas with your family uh, or with your kids and just identify. I think that's a first world problem for us. I think we're probably going to survive and, and be okay. But Jesus is calling us to get perspective on things that really matter in life. And through his story that he's telling, he wants to help us get a grip on reality and really put some skin in the game. Now, I want you to think about this. In order for the Samaritan to help the man who was beaten, he would have had to physically get down into the ditch with the man. And the Bible says that he scooped him up and that he put the man on his own donkey. I can't imagine there would have been any way that the Samaritan could have walked away from that scenario without getting dirty and bloody himself. You know? There's no way he could have gotten down into the ditch, lifted the man up, put him on his own donkey and not find himself becoming dirty and bloody. And that's what happens when you move towards the mess in life. You find that you yourself are going to get dirty and you're going to get bloody and it's not going to be pretty. And in order to make a difference, we have to move toward the mess. It doesn't mystically just happen. It takes intentional efforts. And if we don't make an intentional effort, then we go back to our, I have too much dip for my chips mentality. We really do. And it's often not convenient for us. And we might, uh, this morning, 
we can't think, well, I'm not going to be able to help everyone everywhere. That's true. God's not going to call us to help everyone everywhere. But we can certainly help the ones that God puts right in our path every day. You know, um, about 20 years ago when I was first getting started in ministry, I pastored at a church not too far from here that actually helped start Daybreak. Um, And I was there for about seven years on staff at that church. Um, And I can remember we had a Sunday night service there. And uh, one of the Sunday nights, I was going to speak that Sunday night. And I had a tie on. We wore ties. I wore ties six days a week for seven years. I am so thankful for Daybreak. Uh, but anyway, that was, that was a different era. And so we wore ties there, and I was getting ready to speak. It was about an hour before the Sunday night service was started. There weren't very many people at the church, and people used that church parking lot as a turnaround when they were going the wrong way through Mechanicsburg. And so um, an older woman had pulled into our parking lot to turn around, and there, was, there were a couple inches of, like, slushy snow on the ground, and she couldn't see really where the parking lot was. And in the front corner of our parking lot, she slid down off the corner and into, like, this little drainage area that was there. And came into the church and asked if any of us could help her. Well, there are only a few of us there, so we went out to help her. Now, keep in mind, I'm in my tie, and I'm getting ready to speak at the Sunday night service, and so there, the two other guys who were with me weren't getting ready to speak, and so they're behind the car, and she's in there, and she's driving, and, and they're doing everything they can to, to push this car out of the area that we had, it had slid down into. And you know, I'm kind of half-hearted in this. I'm up by the mirror. I've got a hand on the door handle, you know, trying to keep my, my clothes from getting all messed up kind of encouraging everybody, like, we can do this, you know, but not really adding anything to the mess. And we, the car got moving a little bit. I just remember we got to the point where I, I said, look, I know what this needs. This needs a third guy back behind the car, and I think we can make this happen. So I went around behind the car in my wingtips at the time, I believe, and I tried to dig in as best I could and got down. And you know what happens when you get behind a car that's spinning, everything that's spinning shoots back on you. And the three of us pushed together, and we all, we got the car out, and the three, we were totally covered with snow and slush and ice and dirt, and we just kind of half sat there and laid there in the parking lot laughing about it, got her on her way, and she was fine. But there was that moment of decision that I just realized, to make this work, I got to step in. I got to not be afraid to get messy. I don't know if you've ever experienced it when you've had, a, maybe it's one of your own kids or somebody else's kids, or you see somebody in need, and you have that moment of decision because either that child is bleeding or that child is dirty or their tears and snotty and whatever it is. And you have that moment of decision. If you do what you need to do to show compassion and love in that moment, you're going to get covered in blood. You're going to get covered in tears and snottiness. You're going to get covered in dirt. But you've got that decision to make whether you're going to step in. And I believe it's in those moments in life when we allow our heart to engage, we take a breath we roll up our sleeves, and we dive in. And we have to make a decision. Are we going to do that or not? Is today the day? Is this the moment that I'm going to cross the road, roll up my sleeves, and get into the ditch? And I think at Christmas, we're just so tempted to clean Jesus up so much, and we just want it to be nice with our family and everything to look good and feel right, that even the idea of having compassion sometimes, even the idea of having that hurting, dirty, bloody person around the table in our family room or us going to be with them wherever they might be just doesn't feel like the Christmas card. So we're just so tempted to push away. We're just so tempted to say, not now, not me, not in this moment. And I believe that's, those are the moments that God most wants to speak to our hearts about. 
The truth is that Jesus was the ultimate good Samaritan. The truth is that Jesus told this story about himself. Jesus was telling his own story to the man who was asking this question. Because Jesus saw us laying there beside the road. He saw us beating up, beaten up by a world that was it's broken. And he saw us laying in our own filth and in our own selfishness and arrogance and in our gossip, in our bitterness, in our anger. Jesus saw us in our betrayals and in our addictions and in our apathy and in our rebellion. He saw us in our hatred and our prejudices and in our pain. And he took a breath and he rolled up his sleeves and he dove right into the heart of our mess. And he didn't just cross the road for us, he crossed the universe for us. He left his place of glory and honor and worship to dive into the ditch with us. He was despised and rejected just like the Good Samaritan. And in spite of it all, he hung in there and showed compassion and mercy. And he didn't walk away clean. He got messy. He got bloody. And he sacrificed everything that he had to give. He took on the dirt of every one of us and he paid the price for us to make us whole. And this is why Christmas is such a gift. This is the beauty of Christmas. Christmas is the day that God got into the ditch with us, that he scooped us up, drew us close, took on our pain and our mess so that he could put the world right again. Look at the last two verses in your outline. They're from a familiar passage, John 3, 16 and 17, but from the message. Listen to how it reads. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Would you bow your head with me? This is why Jesus came. Jesus came to show you and to show me what it really means to love. He could have come in power and in force, but instead he came in humility and compassion. And he came knowing full well that it would cost him. But he took a breath, rolled up his sleeves, and dove in. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us what it means to lay down your life for someone. Thank you for showing us that even when it's messy, that you're willing to roll up your sleeves and and jump in. Thank you for showing us that love will stop at nothing to heal the broken and to show compassion. Lord, would you continue to teach us how to see people the way that you see them and how to allow our hearts to be broken by the right things? Move us towards compassion. Teach us how to personally sacrifice to meet needs. Use us, God. I pray it would be a meaningful Christmas for all of us because of what we learn from you this Christmas. Amen. In these next couple moments, uh, (laughs) my microphone's going to fall off. There we go. In these next couple moments, uh, we're going to get ready to take communion together. And uh, the communion is going to be passed during this next song. Uh, feel free to join us in taking communion and, or to worship along. And after the song is over, we'll all take it together if you could just hold it till that point.